Welcome, Neil. sound it just kind of died uh that's weird okay uh, live from land stolen from the potawatomi people this is hell i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing today alex jerry alex how are you doing you sounded like death warmed over when i heard your voice earlier yeah I'm not warmed over anymore oh, dude <laughs> good lord are you getting better no I thought this would be like that stage before you finally get over it, like the eye of the hurricane. How about you, Jonah? How are you feeling? Ah, I'm feeling okay. Also Better than Alex. Also producing today, Jonah Tomko-Smith. So are you going to be hanging out with us during uh, the cell office hours tomorrow night, Friday, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in Chicago's Little India neighborhood to start off your weekend next uh, tomorrow there, Jonah? I will be there. Oh, sweet. I know that Alex will not. Yeah, it's probably for the best. He should probably stay home and sleep. <laughs> exactly. I think he should be quarantined. Join us every Friday night beginning around 6 and going until at least 9, probably 10, maybe 11. Family's visiting after all, and I'm not quite certain how much I want to get home before my nieces see how drunk I get at office hours. In other words, I may be at office hours very late tomorrow night, like late enough to get home when kids are asleep. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here studios. If you are interested in volunteering, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth, our control room. And if you are a community group, club or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-together stop by and we'll show you the large art gallery space that is available and is the home of second story studios which is also up here on the second floor with us today on this is how we are all complicit we all contribute to climate change each of us in our own way some of our work uh, directly adds to our carbon footprint and the products that we create continue to emit carbon well into the future. We all need to face up to our role in global warming and do something about it. Luckily, our guest today has done both. In a few minutes, we will talk to environmental researcher, architect, ecologist, and educator Stephanie Carlisle, who wrote the Fast Company article, I've been polluting the planet for years. I'm not an oil exec. I'm an architect, and no amount of data or complex modeling will rectify the building industry's staggering impact on the environment. Design culture itself needs to change. Yes, architects also cause climate change by not considering the impact their structures will have down the line. Their buildings continuing carbon emissions. Steph is a principal at Kieran Timberlake Architects, a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design, and a co-editor-in-chief of Scenario Journal, where design meets ecology, which you can find at scenariojournal.com. You can find out more about Steph at stephcarlisle.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Steph, S-T-E-P-H underscore Carlisle. We'll also have the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff travels back into our nation's disturbing disturbing origin I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko Smith this week's question from hell is what awaits you on the off world colonies what awaits you on the off world colonies you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio or email it to myself or Alex at Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com the person with the with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins a book we featured on Mon Tuesday show, Tuesday show, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, challenging the privatization of space. Alex or Jonah, one of you, do you have any more of this week's answers to the question from hell? 
Uh, so we got two via email. All right. Uh, this is from Justin D. Uh, the technology that will allow me to gain control and sacrifice the ELO spaceship in order to destroy the Boston and Journey spaceships, <laughs> thus ending classic rock stations and giving humankind one last glimpse of hope. <laughs> that is awesome. ELO Boston, and who is the other spaceship? Uh, Journey. Journey. I yeah. was hoping the Parliament Funkadelics one would get in there too, but you know that they would just win that fight. Uh, John G says Elon Musk's toe knife. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's a Always Sunny in Philadelphia reference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we got some on Twitter. Um, I don't know. This person's username is written in Cyrillic, so. All right. It starts with a Y. The freedom to practice new and exciting forms of astrology in a different part of the galaxy, <laughs> also the lunar minds. Uh, Nicholas says, everything I'm trying to escape on Earth. Uh, Gadzooks Bazooka says, work, I'm sure. Uh, Sean Glee says, my student loans. Right. Lambda Illegal says, a CVS. Uh, Paul Hashtag Free Palestine says, free next day shipping with Amazon Prime. Uh, Cult Kate says, a uh, chance to begin again in a land of opportunity and adventure. I might have seen this damn movie too often. <laughs> Uh, property is not valid says more anti-authoritarian struggle Russ Mayo says our strict but humane ape overlords uh, <laughs> Benny Johnson says vape bliss in all caps uh, I second that that would be good um, Joan Clawford says uh, lost socks Plebeian Prime says space slavery um, time is short says a short spell of indentured servitude and sweet oblivion mitochondrial Steve the three stigmata of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> the three stigmata of Jeff Bezos. That's uh, disturbing. Squadrophenia says a terrestrial god to be agnostic about. Um, uh, and wait, should I? And uh, Red State Red says Cadobas, like the restaurant, like Chipotle. Uh, boops boops. Uh, says indentured servitude obs. Uh, gorgeous Greg says death and taxes, and Kevin O says a fresh hell. A fresh hell. Thank you, Kevin O, for a fresh hell. Let me add that on there. Jonah will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. This is our final show for the month of January 2020, our first month of doing regular daily one-hour shows after 23 years of doing four-hour shows once a week. And we would not have been able to do this week's show if we were still airing for four straight hours on Saturday mornings on WNUR as we had been for the past 23 years because my stomach could not put up with sitting for four straight hours uh, on a Saturday morning because I've had my typical ail ailment is coming back again and it's really driving me nuts. So I want to thank all of you because if it wasn't for you and being so uh, it's supportive of listener-supported radio, then we would not be able to air this week's show. So again, thank you very, very much. So let's recap what we have learned this month on the show and what we hope will be more evidence that this is not the media, this is hell, especially for the media, which condemns what we discuss to a life of eternal damnation never to be considered on what is erroneously called the news. In January, I think one of your mics is hot over there, gentlemen. In January, we learned capitalism can be overcome by propping it up, making it better and more fair and equal, so we can then take it down without crisis. We discovered how dependent we've become on food banks as the social safety net falls apart into tatters, and that low wages are kept low because the government is subsidizing, for example, Walmart employee poor pay with public assistance. With Scotland and Ireland potentially breaking up the UK, we considered that it's not only time to break up Britain, but England too. We were told that Revolutionary Guard Brigadier General Qasem Soleimani, who the Trump administration assassinated, was the obsession of Washington and the media for years, actually leading to his fame growing in Iran. Yes, the media and our government, in a way, created the monster that we decided was Qasem Soleimani, when in reality, 
It was all hype. We determined the best way to describe the Trump administration and the far right is as nativists, that is, those who oppose all immigration, and that democratic triangulation gave cover for the term illegal immigrant, normalizing deportation and border walls, even under democratic presidents. The war on terror is not endless because you will never defeat all terrorism, but it is the forever war because, in reality, it's a U.S. war for global dominance. There is unprecedented severity and inequality in the U.S. system of mass incarceration. And while there is certainly a racialized component to prison, more than anything, it's about class and the government trying to control the poor. The U.S. was, is, and always will be a settler colonial state that is occupying lands managed successfully by natives for millennia that are now destroyed by capitalism, resource exploitation, so-called development and agribusiness and what amounts to a religious war against indigenous beliefs that nature is sacred, while the market sees it as something to be spoiled. The root causes of cancer are toxic carcinogenic chemicals in the environment, chemicals that give children cancer more than anyone else, and the Trump administration is about to unleash a lot more of those chemicals on your kids. Slavery wasn't driven by the slave trade as much as it was enforced by an ongoing centuries-long global war that was the impetus for the world's wars and military-industrial complexes that we recognize today. In other words, today's wars are the continuing legacy of the slave wars. Capitalism has destroyed this planet, so now we're going to take it to our new space colonies on the moon and Mars. But don't worry, capitalist Elon Musk says that when we get to his paradise in the stars, it will be a wonderful communist commune where we all work together, all equal, all harmonious, side by side. And if you believe that, I have a moon base I'd like to sell you. School lunches have become the site of class divisiveness, poorly paid workers, and unhealthy food because here in the States, we don't value care work, like the work often associated with women and mothering, and we don't care about ourselves either, eating whatever processed slop agribusiness puts in front of us. But school lunches are a place where we can fight climate change, poverty, and bring about real revolutionary, transformative change. And today we're going to find out how architecture not only contributes to climate change in the building process, but after it is built and far into the future, that even the buildings that surround us are contributing to our warming planet. We know that what we've been discussing on our show in the first month of our new daily format is not what has been in the daily media news cycle. We apologize for not having endless speculation and wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Kobe Bryant's tragic death or every moment of whatever stage this impeachment thing is at now. But for whatever reason, we thought that what we were discussing with our guests had more of a direct impact on everyone's lives, not only those of celebrities and politicians. But that's what you can expect from us throughout 2020, every day, Monday through Friday, here on This Is Hell. And we could not have done it without you, as This Is Hell is completely listener-supported, because, again, this is not the media. This is hell. Coming up, architects, designers, engineers, planners, developers, they are all complicit and major contributors to climate change. We'll talk to an architect not only willing to admit it, but willing to do something about their role in heating the planet. We'll have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. This week, Jeff travels back into our nation's disturbing origin. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as this week's winner. What's on, to uh, what's on uh, tomorrow's podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Your hangover cure for this weekend, as well as what's happening on This Is Hell next week. Again, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing our Jonah Tomko-Smith and Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. We all contribute to climate change. You, me, everybody. We're all directly or indirectly responsible for the continued emission of carbon, which causes climate change. We walk the streets and see cars emitting greenhouse causing gas leading to climate change, and we dream of an all-electric car future where they don't add to our warming planet. So while walking down that same street, why don't we consider the climate change caused by the buildings that are surrounding us, the construction and the ongoing emissions by that architecture? Here to help us understand architecture's impact on climate change, environmental researcher, architect, ecologist, and educator Stephanie Carlisle wrote the Fast Company article, I've been polluting the planet for years. I'm not an oil exec. 
I'm an architect, and no amount of data or complex modeling will rectify the building industry's staggering impact on the environment. Design culture itself needs to change. Find out more about Steph at stephcarlisle.com. That's S-T-E-P-H. And you can follow Steph on Twitter at Steph underscore Carlisle. Welcome to This Is Hell, Stephanie. Hi, so nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you sound fantastic. The phone line is very clear. Thank you very much. That's not always the case. Uh, you write, for the past eight years, I've spent every day of my professional life enabling an industry that is responsible for nearly 40% of global climate emissions. I don't work for an oil, oil or gas company. I don't work for an airline. I'm an architect. 40%. Why do you think it is that we don't recognize how much architecture, how much building uh, leads to climate change, how much it contributes to climate change? 40%. I mean, why don't we, why have we focused so much on cars? Why have we focused so much on other things and not on the building trades? Well, I think there's there's probably two reasons for that. I think one is that architecture, the building trades, construction are they're a, a little bit of a murky industry. You know, buildings are around us all the time. We rely on infrastructure for where we live, getting to work, going to school, basically all, all parts of our lives, but we don't really see it as a separate industry. Um, it's so intertwined. I think a, a slightly more technical reason, you know, also comes back to the way that climate data gets reported. So we tend to split up global economics and materials into these somewhat artificial industries. So we talk about the energy sector, we talk about transportation, we talk about agriculture, and that's all true and important. But I think the building and the building industry is, is quite interesting because it touches lots and lots and lots of sectors. So that can be a little bit of a hard one for us to wrap our heads around both as designers, but also as um, both consumers of architecture and the built environment and uh, for clients and folks who are directly responsible to for decision making. Why does that compartmentalization happen? Earlier this week, we were talking with uh, historian uh, Vincent Brown, and he was saying that we have this geographical compartmentalization. When we think about history, we think about U.S. history, we think about British history, we think about Canadian history. We have this geographical compartmentalization, and it makes us not recognize all of world history. Why do we have this compartmentalization when it comes to the different sectors and how they contribute to climate change? If, and does that uh, become an obstacle to us understanding what is causing climate change? I think it is an obstacle. I think probably the simplest explanation that I can come up with is um, economics <laughs> broadly. So there's this sense of, you know, carbon accounting for a long time has been somewhat um, connected to who makes things and who pays for things. And uh, a lot of carbon footprinting, um, our carbon accounting has has really tracked, at least academically, with uh, an idea of a carbon tax. And when you when you make that conceptual framework, carbon emissions have to be allocated to a person. It's someone's responsibility. It's someone's fault. They should pay for those emissions. And the golden rule for modelers is you don't double count. And and I th and that's not wrong, but it's a really particular economic construct. I think, um, to put it much more plainly, the contract I'm really interested in is where do we have agency and where do we have power to make positive reductions in carbon emissions? And I think when you look at it from that perspective, while architects are not the sole people responsible for making concrete or building coal plants or manufacturing steel, we have a lot of power to shape what those materials are, how they've made, they are made, which ones we spec, and ultimately what gets built. And I'm really interested in this, you know, basic, very, very obvious um, observation that, you know, the built environment really doesn't build itself. So there are lots and lots of actors, which means there's lots of people here who have an ability to make a change. That uh, responsibility, trying to find someone who is responsible for those carbon emissions, that seems to fall into the idea of focusing more on the individual than the collective amount of uh, co uh, contributions that we can do to cause climate change. The individual responsibility more than a collective responsibility. And we've been talking on our show for a few years now about all of our complicity in climate change. For you, how difficult was it to recognize how you, too, contribute to climate change as an architect? And even though you are 
willing to admit that you contribute to this does that at the same time like if i say you know hey i'm i'm causing climate change because i'm doing this that or the other thing does that become an obstacle to noticing the collective contribution to climate change oh it's such a good question i mean i think this is a really for me has been a bit of an, like an emotional journey both for like reckoning with these numbers and i i like more and more to just speak very very plainly to put the facts on the table and see how we deal with them. Um, I think this question of the individual versus the collective or individual responsibility versus um, systemic and structural causes of climate change is, it's a really important debate to be had. Um, and I, I definitely, I guess, fall on the side that both of them matter deeply, right? And I, I think I'm so glad people are really having this conversation where you know, I believe that to some degree, an overemphasis on individual decision makings or consumerism um, traps people, right? And it really, frankly, it distracts from some of the biggest perpetua perpetuators of climate change um, and corporations that are really, really responsible for the bulk of historic climate impacts. On the other side, I have found myself, as I grapple with this topic as an architect, and as I spend a lot of time talking to folks in the, build, the building industry more broadly, um, we're kind of in this in-between space that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Where, And by that, I just mean I go to work, I sit down at my computer, I'm working on a project, and I'm working with a team of lots of people collaboratively. And we're actually individually making lots and lots of decisions that have a huge impact and probably a much larger impact um, than the impact I personally, you know, Stephanie Carlisle would have in uh, buying a T-shirt or a food decision or exactly what decision I make about the energy of my house. So all of those things matter, but I think there are some sorts of individuals who um, are in these positions where we can make an incredible difference, but we've sort of told ourselves that we don't have any power. We've told ourselves that we're not we're not really in charge because, of course, we're not in a perfect system. We don't have all of the power. Um, and I think architects sort of sometimes oscillate between these two poles of saying we're of great cultural importance, architecture really matters, but then when put on the spot and saying, well, you know, then then what are you doing here? It's like, oh, well, well, no, I'm, a, I'm in a service industry. I can't make all those decisions. And it's true, I'm beholden to clients. Um, and there's, so we're in this very tricky, tricky space of wanting cultural power, but maybe not being willing to deal with um, some of the responsibilities that go with uh, making decisions that are very, very, very large and, and statistically significant. So I like throwing out that number of 40% of global climate emissions are directly connected to the built environment. And when I talk to architects and engineers, I mean, they are connected to drawings that we made, specifications we put out, you know, the day-to-day -day of our work life. Because architecture is about daily living. It is about the design of living. You don't, uh, Corbusier, when he came up with the Garden City, it wasn't just about, hey, I want to make these fancy buildings in this nice place. He was trying to think of a new way for people to think, living to live, living in high rises and have having open areas around uh, these high rises where people could live in a, a dense area, but it still at least enjoy nature. Architecture is about designing for living. How much do you think that people really that architecture designs the way that we live, that the normal public, the average person, realizes how much of an impact architecture has on our daily life? I, it's an interesting question. I, I think that we maybe think about it in terms of uh, the culture of a city, when you're in a beautiful place, when your house feels good. I think we understand now that principles like ample daylight and quality air affect um, the way children learn in school, the way the quality of care in a hospital. So on some level, we really, um, I think most people, you know, understand that and think about it. But when it comes to this, the more the more nuanced levels, um, and certainly the impact of on climate change is is an invisible one. So it's not one that we're constantly reminded of. Um, I think 
health and toxicity is another topic that I, I do a lot of work on, I think is really important. I'm actually really interested on how that topic intersects with, with our climate concerns. Um, but it's easier to point to a uh, chemical off-gassing because you can smell it or something that you can see and say, what is this material? You know, what is it doing to my health? Is this room too dark? Is it smoky? You know, carbon, carbon is a more, is, is a harder thing for people to wrap their heads around. And I think that's also, you know, a, a topic I try to grapple with in the piece of this difference between operational carbon and embodied carbon. And where one, we're used to thinking about energy and, and the relationship between energy and climate change. And we're, I think, much less used to grappling with how all these things we're surrounded by, the concrete, the steel, the wood flooring, the bricks, how those things are made and, and what the magnitude of all of that industry actually is on the climate. You write the environmental impacts of the built environment are staggering. Although it's become mainstream to discuss energy efficiency and advocate for minimizing those impacts, architects, engineers, and planners have yet to truly reckon with the magnitude and consequences of everyday des design decisions. How much does that reckon reckoning with the magnitude and consequences of everyday design decisions, how much does that threaten the livelihoods of architects, engineers, and planners? Is there some sort of threat to that reckoning that makes uh, people within the building industries not want to have that reckoning? I don't think it should be a threat. And, and I don't think there's any innate, I don't think there's any conflict there per se. I think what's probably the most threatening is that well, I, I guess where I, what I hear a lot when I talk to folks at firms all over the country is this, the, the disconnect, I think, is actually what is the most damaging. You have a lot of people who care enormously about this topic, and they don't necessarily see any connection between what I like to call their climate concern and the day-to-day -day act of designing buildings. So they understand that there is climate reproduction, um, repercussions for those decisions, but they don't know what the best decisions to make are. They don't, they're not, they're probably not um, running models necessarily or getting the feedback they need. Um, and so the design process and design culture, you know, marches on. So when you care about a topic, but you can't translate it into your day to day, I, th I think that's also actually really, it's really damaging for designers. Um, so I think that the process that's going on right now that is happening remarkably quickly um, is folks saying, okay, how do I get that feedback? So you would never go through a whole design process without uh, running cost estimates. Um, one of our basic obligations to clients is just to make sure you can actually build the build the building that I'm designing, right? That I, that it's going to come out at the end. And so we'll run cost estimating over and over and over again. It's rougher in the beginning. It's more ballpark. It gets more nuanced at the end. Um, energy modeling that's starting to be done more and more. Um, so you know that you're going to meet code, but you're you're really required to understand that kind of performance and repercussion of the buildings. And I don't understand why architects are not actually required and given more opportunities to understand the carbon repercussions of the decisions they're making. Because really what people need is, is feedback. And I, I think that's the heart of what will needs to change in the design process is this recalibration of our concern and our interests and our goals with the actual techniques and methods to be able to meet those targets. And architects have never really been sufficiently asked to do that. Um, it's not been part of code. It's not been part of regulation. It's, it's you know, some clients will ask for it. Some are nervous. Um, it, it's still really a bit of a, a bit of a new topic. And so I think folks are really trying to wrap their, wrap their heads around it and really wrap their heads around what it would mean to do it for all projects. I think what we, what we need right now is, you know, it's not a couple green buildings. Um, that, that's not really the magnitude of what we're talking about here. We need a, a complete change in how we think about construction and how we really build the built environment because none of us, I mean, a, a tricky thing is architecture, buildings, infrastructure, they're not like other kinds of consumer products. So I might argue that we should all just have fewer pairs of jeans, and we we probably all should. Uh, that in and of itself would decrease uh, the carbon footprinting of that sector. I'm I'm not prepared to say that people don't deserve high quality housing and healthcare and hospitals and schools. And so if we are going to provide those services 
And at a global scale, um, there is going to be a great deal of construction as populations continue to increase and as we really believe that folks should have a just and equal access to services, there will be more and more construction. So the question is, how do we do that construction and how do we do it in a way that is climate smart and helps us make a difference and doesn't perpetuate climate change? So you're an educator. Does that mean then that we have to completely restructure the curriculum, the education of the building trades and architecture? Does that need to be completely changed due to climate change? It's <sighs> a good question. I, I, I mean, I think so. I, I think it's a realignment. And because um, I, I worry if we say that it, we need to completely change all of it, like in my heart, I believe that. But when we say that, it, it implies that actually what we need to be doing is, is totally different from how architects have been thinking about architecture in the past. And I, and I think that's actually not true. Architects love thinking about materials and how they're made and have a really diverse um, perspectives. I think that on the design practice, I think that this sort of toolkit or climate literacy is really needs to be present in all schools of architecture. For example, you can be, you know, architecture schools are accredited. Um, we have an organizational entity that goes around and says what needs to be in an architectural education and knowledge about climate change and embodied carbon is not in that list, right? That, that needs to change right away. Every school of architecture should have some sort of course that prepares students and I would hope more than one, not just to evaluate their own design decisions and really make this part of design, but also communicate in a reasonable way about climate, to talk to their clients, to talk to normal people, to be able to actually have a conversation. Because I think when we don't do the work within our own industry, um, you know, we're really hamstringing ourselves. And I think there's a lot of folks who want to engage in this topic, but they just, they just don't really know how and they weren't really trained to do so. Yet you write, while architects are not fully responsible for steel manufacturing or concrete production per se, there is a direct line from the material specifications that architects write to the steel mills of China, the coal mines of Appalachia, the brick kilns of India, or a clear-cut forest in the Pacific Northwest or the Amazon. So to what extent, extent do architects not reckon with their contributions to climate change? Because the same reason all of us don't really reckon with climate change, and that is the steel mills of China, the coal mines of Appalachia, the brick kilns of India, or clear-cut forests in the Pacific Northwest, or the Amazon, are far-off places that architects never visit. It is the disconnect due to resource exploitation being made invisible to those making decisions when it comes to architecture, as it has been made invisible to all of us in the Western world who are not seeing that resource exploitation? Absolutely. I, I think we don't see that exploitation when it's far away, and we don't see that exploitation when it's in our backyards. I mean, the environmental justice issues around material manufacturing and extraction are not only happening in the Amazon, um, and they there is an incredible range of behaviors, let's just say, um, around any single material. And I, I think that's one part that frustrates designers so much is the, the real lack of transparency. We treat so many materials like commodities and have feel that we have no ability to know where they're coming from, um, what kind of labor practices were behind them, even the most basic pieces of information that I think folks would expect an architect or a, or a contractor might know about a material um, is is completely unknown. So um, a great ex so a great example would be wood, and I, I think this is probably one that is the most contentious to talk about. So I'm. Surprise! I'm bringing it up, but um, you know, we we really have very very few mechanisms in place uh, from a policy perspective, perspective and an economic perspective to know when you go down to Home Depot where that wood came from. You don't even know if it was illegally harvested. You also don't know if it was came from a really sustainably managed forest. And so I don't want to imply that it means that all material extraction is bad or damaging. What frustrates me the most, honestly, is that when we don't have transparency in the industry, we also don't have a way to celebrate people who are doing really, really good practices. And we're forced to just kind of be in this 
averaged out middle ground um, that doesn't support innovation, that doesn't allow us to move forward, um, and is really unnecessarily abstract. I worked at a loading dock uh, under the table in San Francisco years ago, and we, mm-hmm. we imported tchotchkes from Thailand. And because Thailand is rainforest, the, all of the wood was made uh, was rainforest wood. I then saw some of our products at a Greenpeace store, and mm. I was shocked. But I told the person who was working there, I said, you know, that this is rainforest wood, and they had no idea. So even people who really work and concentrate on this stuff, this can get by anybody nobody would nobody knows where that wood is coming from usually you write uh, broadly speaking there are two ways of measuring the emissions caused by buildings operational carbon the emissions associated with energy used to operate a building and embodied carbon the emissions associated with materials and construction processes throughout the whole life cycle of a building as you were mentioning earlier you write how we've come to recognize that it is not enough for architects and engineers to focus solely on operational carbon why was the operational carbon recognized but the embodied not acknowledged as a contributor to carbon emissions was this a purposeful intentional ignoring of the environmental cost of the actual construction process was this an attempt to give the impression that architecture was addressing climate change was this greenwashing why was this the case? I think talking about operational carbon, well, first of all, operational carbon is really important. So operational and carbon in and of itself is, you know, somewhere, you know, the, these percentages keep changing, but it's, you know, somewhere around, you know, the high 20s in terms of global carbon emissions. We use a lot of energy to operate buildings, to run infrastructure, and it really matters where that energy comes from. Right. So um, so we should be talking about operational energy. And I think folks have um, taken the lead on that for a long time. I think right now where it's about 28 percent of global carbon emissions. I think embodied energy is just harder. Right. So everyone gets a utility bill and every building knows at some point every building owner, every institutional client pays for that energy and they know how much at some point or could look up and find out how much electricity do I use? How much natural gas do I use? What do I have a wood burning stove? Um, I also think that within, for a long time, there's been a lot of data and a lot of tracking on energy grids. So energy grids are wildly complicated, but the data's there, right? Embodied carbon was just this, is this murkier, trickier space. Uh, It's not regulated. Uh, the information's not hasn't been widely available till recently. The tools are hard to use, uh, and you don't pay for it. So I, I think that's actually the the biggest reason. Now that we have more tools and more data out there to measure embodied carbon, you know, folks are faced with those numbers and have to look at them and are sort of in the space of like, oh man, now I got to deal with this too. You know, I I would hope that it's not a like a. Um, that that can be seen in a positive light of this is another way I can actually make a difference. But but it's also true that like this is yet another thing that now architects and engineers and have to grapple with because we have so many things we need to grapple with. And I, th- I think that's that's part of the whole issue is not necessarily people trying to greenwash their buildings, which, of course, happens. Um, but architects are really asked to do a lot, right? We have to protect health and safety. We have to build buildings that are beautiful, that last, that uplift the human spirit, that don't give you cancer, that keep you warm and cold and perfectly thermally comfort, comfortable, that don't cause climate change. Like it's, it's really a staggering thing that architects and engineers are trying to do when we build a building in a way that's ethical. So um, the, it's really challenging, but I, I, I think we can handle that challenge. Um, I, and I think it's time. I think we have to talk about it because frankly, there are really where the rubber meets, meets the road is there is so much global construction. This is such a big and important industry and it's done by a relatively small number of people that um, there's no way for us to meet any of our global carbon targets without addressing embodied carbon. And it's why we have to deal with it, even though it's really hard. 
On, on this increased uh, construction that's happening all around the world, you're right, when we look at new buildings anticipated to be built between now and 2050, embodied carbon, also known as upfront carbon because it is released before a building is even occupied, is projected to account for nearly half of total new construction emissions for practicing architects, engineers, policymakers, and anyone who cares about climate strategy. This should give us pause. There's now this relatively new phenomenon of buildings being built and never becoming occupied, only being used speculatively as a real estate investments with occupancy not as much of a priority. How much more is architecture contributing to climate change when buildings are built as speculative investment properties, as commodities, and not as much as actual residences? Oh, geez. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around personally for me and to justify i one one way of tackling that question is is if you think about um for all of human so i think the most just way to think about it would be which is is not a way that any of us professionally are prepared to think about buildings we tend to have a client and they tell us what we're building, right? Like, I don't go to a client and say, you shouldn't build a school, you should actually build a healthcare clinic, right? That's not t typically the position that architects are in. It might be for developers or other sort of like speculative work, which is not, not where I'm at. Um, most architects enter a, a project where a lot of um, decisions about what and where the project might be has, has sort of been locked in. And there's there's a real you know functional need for that client. But when you think about the built environment more broadly, or when we think from a policy perspective, um, you know, we we have effectively have a carbon budget to work with, if we want to save off the most um, horrific effects of climate change, and and I think when we look at it from that perspective, what's interesting about a budgeting approach is then you say, yeah, where do I want to spend that that carbon? Do I do I want to spend it on uh, speculative real estate? Do I want to spend it on raising the level of equitable housing for all people? Do I want to spend it on, um, I don't know, it's tricky. I, I don't think architects and engineers tend to make those decisions. Um, I think that if we had more transparency about embodied carbon or more policy and regulation around this topic, maybe there would be a way to um, exercise some political mechanisms that would nudge the market, because right now it's really just whatever people can afford, because you, you really don't pay for that carbon in any specific way, even though it affects all of us. Um, but it, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> Actually, it, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird how my show is called This Is Hell. Yeah, it's really very bizarre. So, You're uh, very consistent. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, Steph, uh, the you write how the Paris Climate Change Report makes the case for the urgent need for action and also painstakingly lays out strategies that can help us bridge this gap while also focusing on creating transformational change and just transitions. It's a time for the building industry to act. But when it comes to their bottom line, why should the building industry act? In the long term, does the building industry need to create transformational change and just transitions in order to survive? I think if there were economic or regulatory mechanisms in place, they would. I th right now, there are not. So I hope that will change very, very soon. Um, and so, for example, the first uh, embodied carbon code in the world, I believe, just passed a few months ago um, in Marin County, California. And there are several that are on the books in at state levels that are working their way slowly. So, for example, that would say um, the concrete. So I think that right now they're just addressing some basic structural materials as a way to get started. And it would say something like along the lines of the concrete in your building cannot exceed this um, number of kilograms of CO2 per meter squared. So it would provide a, a cap. And it would say, find that concrete, make it happen, or you can't build that building. Um, and it would set some basic performance specs. That is a very radical thing. When that sort of code goes into place, or when we see things um, like bonuses, or when there's an economic benefit for having lower carbon buildings, there will be real uh, incentive for the construction industry broadly um, to address this topic. I think right now it needs to happen because um, 
we, I, I don't think it's appropriate for us to all just sit around and wait to be regulated into doing something about this topic or wait for a carbon tax or wait for some other economic mechanism. I think that um, we're, we're all too smart to sit around and do nothing, right? And, and it, the math isn't going to work out because we're not going to make it in time if we all just sit around and don't do anything. So I think there really is sort of a, an ethical imperative. The other point I want to make, though, about the construction industry is I think architects for a really long time have really not had incentive. And this gets into a whole kind of deep topics about who we work for and how contracts are structured. But let's just say the, the way that most projects happen does not foster a lot of collaboration between the building trades and designers. And it often sets them up as being antagonistic to each other. And I think probably one of the biggest uh, barriers to us making really radical transformation is that we have to find a way for designers, engineers, clients, and the building trades to see themselves as being in alignment. We have to find a way in which low carbon buildings are supported by the construction industry and by trades and by unions. And I think if that can happen, it will make, we will make an incredible amount of progress. Um, and there's no reason in my mind why those things need to be in conflict with each other. Um, but I, I don't think that a lot of the carbon conversation for building materials has been using any sort of just transition um, framework at all. And I think that that's really, really new for people to grapple with and think about. One last question for you, Stephanie. We've been speaking with environmental researcher, architect, ecologist, and educator, Stephanie Carlisle, who wrote the Fast Company article, I've been polluting the planet for years, I'm not an oil exec, I'm an architect. And we have just skimmed the surface of this, despite having a 32-minute conversation. Uh, you, can, you should definitely read this article because there's so much more to it. And the way of being able to have a different perspective and view on architecture, it really is a fascinating work. You can find out more about Steph at stephcarlisle.com, and you can follow Steph on Twitter at Steph underscore Carlisle. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Stephanie, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. <laughs> Stephanie, can architecture as we know it today survive climate change? No, <laughs> no, it can't. No, it can't. But also architecture and the way that we build has radically transformed in the past. And we have to believe that it can radically transform in the future. There is no reason for us to think that we should be building buildings the way we do right now, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. There's no reason. It, it, it should change. It's always changing. It just needs to change in a direction that moves us towards climate progress, that moves us towards equity, and moves us towards a world we actually want to live in. That sounds kind of nice. Stephanie, yeah, right? thank you so much for being on our show. It was hell just a few seconds ago, and all of a sudden it just got a little bit better. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate you being on the show this week. Thank you so much. I always appreciate talking about this topic and all the work that you do. Thank you so much. All right, I'm, I'm going to bug you in the future to have you back on the show if that's okay. Oh, please do. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This is Hal, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This Is Hell. And in a moment, uh, we'll also have the moment of truth, this weekend's hangover cure, and what's happening on the show next week. This week's question from Hal is, what awaits you in the off-world colonies? What awaits you in the off-world colonies? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM it to us on Twitter email to myself or Alex at Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a book that we featured earlier on this week's show, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Jonah, I'm assuming that we might have some more answers to this week's question from hell, but you never should assume, you know. Uh, we have one more All right. uh, from uh, one Jeff Dorchin. All right. um, he says, all the green skanks Captain Kirk discarded. <laughs> God, Jesus. Really? Really? Is that appropriate? I find it not. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell again at our Facebook page or DM it via Twitter or email it to us. And the person with the best answer gets Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier Challenging the Privatization of Space. You can hear our interview with Peter from earlier this week 
at thisishell.com. On Patreon tomorrow, we'll get you caught up on what's happening at the lake from the small town newspaper I got as a gift over the holidays. Apparently, apparently, the best thing to do if you come home and find a window broken and you see that someone is inside your home, apparently the best thing to do is stay outside and as you have a concealed carry permit, you might as well shoot out the rest of your home's windows that are not broken. Also, there's a teenage band in town with the best name ever for a teenage band, but you cannot find out what the name is unless you subscribe to our Patreon podcast and listen tomorrow. Streaming live at patreon.com slash this is hell. It is the best name ever for a teenage band, and I want somebody to prove me wrong. Don't forget, our Patreon podcast is every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, patreon.com slash thisishell. This week's featured interview from our archives is one of the many interviews we did with Noam Chomsky. I'm not too sure which one. We were the first show to interview Noam live following 9-11 on September 15th, 2001. Uh, I'm not too sure which interview we are going to be sharing, but you can hear us play one of them tomorrow. All I know is when Alex showed up today, I said, Alex, which interview are we going to play tomorrow? And he just, and he just said, oh, Chomsky. <laughs> That's all I know. Coming up during the moment of truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin travels back into our nation's disturbing origin. We'll have the question from Hell Winner. Uh, we'll have the hangover cure, tell you what's uh, happening on next week's show, all that kind of stuff. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was really really high. This is hell, and my guess is you already have Hefe on the line. I know it. I know you have Jeff. You know what to do, The grotesque old pious. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I know Democrats are capable of being just as mendacious and self-serving as any human being, and have been. But the Republicans in the Senate are just stunning models of perfidy, simply taken on their own terms, by their own standards, or ostensible standards. They're outdoing themselves. Even taking the least flattering definition of the already disgraced label conservative, they're not coming close to measuring up. It's a scary night to think about how low a human being can debase himself. It's crazy windy tonight, strong wind swirling around us, sounds like my apartment building is being flushed down an enormous toilet. I just watched a short video of a crowd berating Rudy Giuliani as he's being ex escorted down the street by cops. You're a piece of sh Giuliani, I feel like videos like this are all I want to watch. Now it's morning. I've just finished a supply run for the axe-throwing bar job site. It's still blustery outside, not as rollicking as last night, but a steady wind punctuated with gusts is a gustery day, as famous Detroit weatherman, wisecracker, alcoholic, and Holocaust survivor Sonny Elliott might have said. The morning finds Los Angeles strewn with detritus from palm trees, some fronds weighing upward of 50 pounds. Such a piece of tree debris once came crashing through the cargo space window of my Subaru legacy wagon. I was about 2,500 miles away from the car at the time, thank fate. Even now, palm crud is drumming intermittently on my car roof. It's a shaggy city, raining its dandruff on us all. Out here at the edge of the continent, the sunset edge, with Republican perfidy wafting its sickly stench across the land, I'm reminded of our nation's dark roots, the ones we can't hide, no matter how much peroxide we use. The first novel written here in what would become the USA was called Wayland by Charles Brockton Brown. Remember, as I describe this, that it was written before the Revolutionary War, before the War for Independence, when this was still a land of people driving fence posts into the ground, every man had to drive his own fence posts into the ground. That was a thing men had to do. Mama wouldn't do it for him. Everything was made out of wood. People were barely accustomed to science yet. And here's a guy writing a book about a man who comes from Germany to North America, 
with a divinely revealed religion he's invented or been afflicted with, and he wants to teach it to the natives, and it doesn't work out. And then I think he's in a stone building of some kind on a hilltop, and voices call to him, and sparks flare out the top of this cairn-like temple, and he spontaneously combusts. And then his children, the character's children, are afflicted with hearing these voices, some of whom urge the son to murder his family. And that's how literature starts in North America, with invented religions and stone structures on hillsides, evil voices calling, lightning and spontaneous human combustion. We were almost ready to become a nation. Charles Brockton Brown was inspired to write this novel, his artistic invention that would later inspire Poe and Mary Shelley and many other writers. One of them was Howard Phillips Lovecraft, whom the literary world has relegated to a kind of sideshow. But I would argue, at least here in this essay, that H.P. Lovecraft is the most American of writers. His vision of a realm outside our universe, but ever watchful for opportunities to steal back into the world, into power, is America. I don't like to say America. I generally refer to our nation as the United States. But in this case, the arrogant America is the proper name for our teetering, threatened, multi-generational experiment. In Lovecraft, the elder gods of Cthulhu have been ousted from this world. I don't know who ousted them, but they have been pushed off the stage of reality, maybe by the Enlightenment, who knows? They exist in another realm, outside our realm of existence. But in that realm of not being, they poke and scratch at the cracks in the world, always seeking to pry away open, a space through which to spill their madness and evil back into the world of humans. And as bad as Democrats are, and some are certainly allies of this ancient evil, the followers of the Elder Gods are really the right-wing Republicans and the Nazis. They're always poking, trying to wear a hole in, in civil society, striving hungrily to find a way to bring full-blown genocide back into fashion, genocide of black people mostly, but of Native Americans too, and anyone who could be associated with their aspirations of freedom. Whatever calumny these decent people can be tarred with, the Elder Gods command certain humans to defame them with it. The Elder Gods are the puppet masters of the right. Yogg-Sothoth is their Jesus. When they say Jesus, they mean a malevolent being desperate to set humans butchering each other, their flesh to feed this monster they worship. When Rudy Giuliani walks down the street, it is this demonic, pagan grotesquerie the mob is recognizing when they say, you're a piece of sh Giuliani, when I see Senator Rick Scott defend Donald Dump, what I hear is, come, O gods of Thulu, O elders of mayhem, violence, and destruction, come take your old place at the banquet table so the organs and mutilated flesh of humanity might sate your endless hunger. Your delight in destruction is the joy of the GOP. When Ken Starr makes his case for whatever he claims to make a case for, I see him shoveling piles of shrieking infants with a pitchfork into the slavering maws of the ravenous ancient gods of corruption, pain, and perversion. What goes on in other countries is similar, I'm sure, though they have their own villainous demons, Baba Yaga, Vlad Tsepesh, the Lou Garou. But here in the United States, we, the people, are under constant attack from the disciples of Yogg-Sothoth, the worshippers of Thulu, the sniveling, obsequious servants of the Elder Gods, the G-O-P. Now it is night again, and I am afraid. The vile, eyeless, yet multi-eyed, mouthless, yet ridged with jagged, numberless teeth. These are the gods of the G-O-P, the grotesque, old, pious. They lurk beyond the darkness, the Elder Gods, fangs gleaming and dripping with thirst. They see us and covet our land, our homes, our brains, our hearts, our livers. Like big predators in the jungle night, they await their chance to pounce, shake us by our necks, crush our windpipes in their jaws, and devour us. It was ever thus. When the nation was young, the men were commanded by voices to murder their wives and ch sisters. Now they call the voices pragmatism. Today they call the way they worship these terrifying alien beings faith. Today they call fealty to the ancient beings conservatism. Sometimes events conspire to bring the fact that what we think of as commonplace circumstances are actually fragile structures that can be broken by focused brutality. And sometimes 
All it takes is a night of violent gusts of wind, swirling and blowing, or blurling kind of weather, to make us see clearly the evil operating beside, behind the scenes of supposedly polite or politic society. All is as glass and can be shattered in a night. No one should ever wonder why we laugh when someone punches a Nazi. The opposite of the black pit of ancient evil, it's joy. Joy is why we laugh. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Holy crap, dude. That was that was spectacular. I almost swore. That was spectacular. <laughs> that was that was freaking great. Thank you so much. That was Did it make up for my uh sloppy seconds for Captain Kirk? Uh, yeah, sure. And uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm still more concerned about your axe-throwing bar situation. And have you ever driven a fence post? You know what? I have not driven a fence post. I have dug a fence post. I have I, I had a job where they told us the next day we were going to be driving fence posts, so mm -hmm. I quit. <laughs> I actually I worked with my dad uh, on our—we uh, had a six-foot, like, redwood fence that he built— by hand, because he's, you know, son of a builder. He's an architect. Right. Cut the wood. He, we dug the holes. We, you know, we did all the things. We made it plumb. We poured concrete into it. Not, uh, you know, unlike the pioneers, I guess. But uh, <laughs> we set up our fence posts. We built our fences. Yeah, look at you building fences. I thought that you were against that. All right, Jeffy, until next week. Why? Stay beautiful. Oh, okay. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what awaits you on the off-world colonies? What awaits you on the off-world colonies? Jonah, uh, this week's winner gets the book that we featured earlier on this week's show, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Did we get any more responses to this week's question from Hell? No more responses. All right, my answer it. to this week's question from Hell, what awaits you on the off-world colonies? Like a few of you, I was going to say student debt. I think uh, Micah and Tom and Sean all mentioned that uh, because student debt is the virus that follows you everywhere. But I'm going with my negative credit rating, keeping those low-interest moon loans out of my reach and yet another real estate market I cannot afford. So let's see. The, the winner of this week is I liked... Uh, Vinny saying vape bliss. Joan, though that might have been Joanne, saying lost socks is what she was going to find. Uh, Kevin saying a fresh hell. Those were all really good. Also, Bradley, alien genocide, intergalactic slave trade, earthling supremacy, you know, the usual. Astrid saying replicants and sad unfilled dreams in the rain because the reference to Blade Runner. That's fantastic. Paolo saying exotic carpets. Don't know why. Mark saying fully automated luxury pansexual space communism. And Katie's the same feeling of disconnect or dis, uh, discon, discontent. Sorry, discontent. But this week's winner, despite ignoring the P-Funk mothership, is got to be Justin D. saying that what he was going to find in the off-world colonies are the spaceships of ELO, Boston and Journey, and some <laughs> madcap battle. Though I think the P-Funk mothership should have been there, and I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure Parliament Funkadelic bought ELO's spaceship and then toured with it as their mothership. I'm not kidding you. I'm pretty sure... That's a real thing. So this week's winner is Justin D. Justin, just contact us via Facebook or send us an email with your mailing address, and we will send you Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, challenging the privatization of space. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And this week, Jonah has the hangover cure. Uh, this week's hangover cure is the Filipino favorite Tapsalog? I guess. Tapsalog? In the New Year's Eve article at CNN Travel headline, The Morning After, What People Around the World Eat and Drink to Beat a Hangover, uh, Joel Porter and Stacey Listow report, uh, Chef Jordi Navarra is at the helm of one of the city's best restaurants, Toyo Eatery, which is famed for its refined reinterpretations of Filipino classics. Uh, they then quote Navarra explaining, uh, as for eating after heavy drinking, many Filipinos usually go for Tapsalog. It's basically like cured, semi-dried, or marinated beef with garlic rice and a fried egg. I really like how it's simple, filling, and super convenient, uh, with places that sell it all over Metro Manila. 
Porter and Listo add, in Manila, the name of the game is trying to get ahead of the hangover by going all in on a big, greasy meal at the end of a boozy night. Uh, that makes this week's hangover cure the Filipino favorite tapsalog. That actually sounds really delicious. I could go for a dish of that right now. I'd try it. I know, exactly. This neighborhood's got every other cuisine. Cuisine. Why don't we have Philippine cuisine? Uh, so, Jonah, do you know who's on the show next week uh, start, or airing on Monday, live streaming at thisishell.com at 10 a.m.? Uh, sorry, I don't know. I don't remember. I'll, I probably won't even be around by then. Jonah, your voice has really, <laughs> really gotten a lot worse there. All well, right. Monday and Tuesday booked. I just, sorry, my brain is not working, Chuck. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry about it. Everybody just tune in tomorrow to the Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. I'll get you caught up to date in what's happening in small town United States. And I will uh, also be sharing with you one of our interviews that we have done with Noam Chomsky. Also, just keep going to our Facebook page, checking out our website, following us on Twitter to find out what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. We want to thank this week's guests, environmental researcher, architect, ecologist, and educator Stephanie Carlisle, who was on today to talk about her article on how she has been polluting the planet for years as an architect. Also want to thank Jennifer E. Gaddis, author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, which was a fascinating discussion. Journalist Peter Ward, author of The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space, the book that Justin D. just won during the question from hell. Thanks for Peter being on the show this week. And finally, you got to go back and listen to Monday's interview with historian, African studies, and African-American studies scholar and award-winning writer Vincent Brown, author of Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic slave war. This is one of the most important interviews we have done for a really long time because it makes you reconsider the slave trade not as a slave trade, but a transatlantic, a global slave war. Thanks to our staff, Jeff, for doing the moment of truth, Ronaldo for writing Rotten History, and Alex and Jonah for producing this week's show. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. Also tomorrow, I hope to see all of you at This Is Hell Office Hours tomorrow night, Friday, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, west of, uh, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, and then back here at thisishell.com Monday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcasting live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing this week, Jonah Tomko-Smith and Alex Jerry, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. Oh, it's uh, Martin Arboleda and his book, Planetary Mind, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism, Monday. Pray for me that I can make it until then. Yes, we are. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.